0: You're listening to a message from Thrive Harbor, a multi-church young adult ministry in Gig Harbor, Washington. For more information, please visit us at our website at www.thriveharbor.com. Um, yeah, I'll probably grab one of these here. Okay. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you tonight. Um, the Lord is so good. It's, a, it's amazing to see Thrive still going strong. and. Uh, to come and visit. Um, I live in Dallas, Texas now, by the way. I'm uh, still a Hawks fan, of course. Not a Cowboys fan. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a pleasure to see all you guys here. Uh, many years ago, um, I like to think less years than actually really what did happen, uh, I was sitting right where you are. And um, I attended a youth group at, um, that met out on the peninsula and was led by a guy named Tim Cedarland. And uh, Tim and I are still good friends and We still talk about Bible passages just like I did way back then, and um, he discipled me in the Bible and continues to disciple me in the Bible even to this day, even though I'm 43 years old now. So um, uh, it's my pleasure to share some of the things with you that I first learned in his house. Uh, One of the very first Bible studies I ever attended was a Bible study in the book of Daniel in Tim's house. I didn't know anything about the Bible at all and the very first thing I learned uh, from him was on, the, on biblical prophecy. So sometimes um, sometimes we can be intimidated by biblical prophecy because uh, the churches don't teach on it very often anymore, and we hear a lot of different views out there, um, and we're, we wonder, you know, is there a lot of contention, or is there a lot of controversy, or can you even really know what the Bible teaches about end times, or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so, um, you know, I just want to say that one of the very first topics I learned about in the Bible was biblical prophecy, the very subject that many people feel is impossible to understand. And uh, I'm not alone in that. If you were to look at the New Testament, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, he went to a place called Thessalonica, and he was only there for about two weeks before he was driven out by the Jews that wanted to stone him and were constantly following him around to get him to stop sharing the gospel. Um, And even in that two-week period, he had already taught the Church of Thessalonica about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, of course, wrote him a letter asking all kinds of questions about that. Um, And so he had to respond to it. So, I just want to encourage you, maybe you don't know a lot about um, biblical prophecy, or maybe you don't even know a lot about the Bible, um, but I just want to encourage you that you can understand it, and you can um, come to a, a knowledge of what the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is about, and that second coming is our hope. Um, as, a, as a church, I, you know, as a believer, I'm not looking for um, doom and gloom to come on the world, uh, I believe the Bible teaches that there's going to be a rapture, and that the church is going to be taken off this earth, and then that's going to be followed by seven years of judgment designed specifically for the nation of Israel. And we will get into some of those concepts tonight, um, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Daniel chapter 9, and uh, let me just uh, open our time in prayer here real quick. Lord Jesus, um, as we start to sort through these um, great mysteries of the Bible, I just pray, God, that you would give us all an understanding uh, of this text, that you'd make it clear to us and that you'd help us to be able to see what it is you've taught us and said to us in your word. And I just pray, God, that we would take it to heart and it would be a great encouragement for these fellow brothers and sisters here tonight. Um, and I just pray, God, you'd bless them and encourage them. And amen. So I'm, I'm going to start in the book of Daniel. and. Um, Really what I want to do is I want to set up the context for Matthew 24. Uh, If you read Matthew 24, cold turkey by yourself, there's a lot of confusing things in it, and you really don't know what it's talking about. Um, However, in Matthew 24, uh, the book of Daniel is going to be referenced, and the apostles, who were Jesus' closest followers, uh, probably knew the Old Testament very well. Uh, and I think even to a verse in the New Testament where Nathaniel finds the Lord Jesus Christ, because Israel was looking for a Messiah, and uh, or not Nathaniel, sorry, one of Nathaniel's brothers finds him, and he comes to him he says, "Hey, we've found the Messiah," you know. And uh, of course, Nathaniel says, uh, "Can anything good come from Nazareth?" He doesn't believe right away, uh, but but the point is, is that they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for their King to come and deliver them from the Romans. And many of their hopes were tied up in things that had been promised in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to sort of lay a foundation here in the book of Daniel and kind of walk you through uh, some of this so that you have a context and an understanding on why the disciples would ask the questions that they're going to ask in Matthew 24. Sound like a plan? Okay. Um, And if I'm not rambling on a lot, uh, I should be able to get through this and then we'll we have uh, time at the end for question and answer. So if you have questions, think up some really good ones. And the really, really hard ones, I'll let Michael Baturce answer. Because he knows all this. Um, Daniel chapter 9. So I'm just going to set this up. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Daniel is a Jewish young man who was carried off into captivity in Babylon in chapter 1. Um, his home is ransacked and burned. His parents are probably killed. We don't know that for sure. But he is about probably 16 to 18 years old young guy, uh, and he's carried off into Babylon and um, has to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and he watches his precious temple burn to the ground, and he's in that situation and in that moment, it would be very easy as a Christian to wonder, you know, has God abandoned me, right? Uh, The Jews were the chosen people of God through the Old Testament, they were um, They were the ones that had the the scriptures, the lineage of the Messiah, the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the covenants, and they were god 's chosen and special people, and how could God allow this to happen? These Babylonians, these people that worshipped idols, these worldly um, sinners to come into ransack Jerusalem and burn it to the ground and carry me off into captivity. That's the situation Daniel is in as a young man. And although he's in a foreign land surrounded by people that are unbelievers, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never read a Bible, who don't understand anything that um, Daniel had been raised on, he remains faithful all the way through his life. In fact, we never read of a single sin in the Bible uh, of Daniel, just like Joseph, who's another person in the Bible we never read of a sin of, and there's one more person in the Bible we never read of any sin. Do you guys know who that is? Yep, the easy answer, Jesus. Yep, Sunday school answer number one. Um, and so uh, so Daniel is this righteous guy, and by the time we get to chapter 9, he's studying his Bible, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and in the prophet Jeremiah, God gave the prophet Jeremiah a prophecy that said the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel is now about in his 80s. He's an old man at this point in the, in the book. So he's reading Jeremiah, and he's doing the math, and he's saying, wow, 70 years are pretty much up, and it means pretty soon we're going to get to go back home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And in response to that, he confesses his sins and he prays to God and he says, look, we know we've sinned against you. And I'm paraphrasing. You can read chapter 9 for yourself here. We've sinned against you and we've rebelled and we've done everything that you told us not to do. And then all the sworn judgments in the, that were record, recorded in the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, all those things have happened to us, just like you said they would, God. And he takes, in one sense, the sin of the nation on himself and says, please forgive us for all this sin, recognizing that that God was about to do something amazing, right? Um, And when you've waited for something for 70 years, 80 years uh, of your life, you're 80 years old, it could be easy to become discouraged. It could be easy to say, man, maybe this just isn't working out the way uh, I thought it would. But instead of that, he prays. And in response to that prayer in verse 20, I'm going to pick up some reading here. He says, while I was speaking, And praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, that is Jerusalem. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice is about three p.m. in our time. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Wow, that's a lot. Um, Can you change slides for me? My clicker's not working. There we go. So Daniel has just been given a prophecy. And if we were to read on a little bit, the angel even tells him when it's going to happen. Right? The angel says in verse 25, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay. So here's the amazing thing. He's praying about the desolation of Jerusalem. He's praying about this temple that's been destroyed. Now a temple doesn't really mean much to you and I, because the Holy spirit indwells us the instant we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our body is the temple of the Holy spirit. But for the Jewish person in the Old Testament, the literal presence of God dwelt in the temple. When Solomon uh, finished building the first temple in his day, the Bible says the Shennina glory, or this cloud, descended onto the temple, and it was filled the whole temple. And basically, all these priests, they couldn't even do their jobs. They had to get out of the temple because the presence of God came into this temple. And when Israel turned to sin and started worshiping idols, when you get to the book of Ezekiel, you find out that this presence of God that had physically been in this temple literally rises above the temple and then slowly hovers over the Mount of Olives east of it and then slowly goes into heaven as if not wanting to leave. And it's shortly after that that the Babylonians come and they burn the temple to the ground. So the very presence of God for Daniel uh, is now... Has been gone for 70 years. But Jeremiah promised that at the end of those 70 years, Jeremiah 25 or 29, I believe, it might be 25, I might have that wrong. Jeremiah promised that hey, 70 years later, we're going to rebuild this temple. And, and Daniel's excited. He's praying about that. He's going to get to see the presence of God again. Okay? And so, but God goes on way beyond that and he says, hey, look, I know that you think the temple has been desolate for these last 70 years. That is, the very presence of God has not been in it. And that is true. The, the, the glory went back into heaven, okay? And he says, but the desolation of, Israel, of Jerusalem is actually not going to be restored right now. Even though the temple is going to be rebuilt, it's not going to be restored until 70 times 7, Now a seven, and I'm just going to give you this because we don't have time to go into all this tonight, but if you study the book of Daniel, you'll find out that a seven is seven years long. So 77s is 490 years, okay? And so the angel's telling him here, hey, from the time that the the order to rebuild the temple is given until the time the anointed one, Jesus, comes, it's going to be 77s, okay? And by the way... Once, you, or once, once those sevens are completed, these are all the things that are going to happen uh, that are up on the screen. Transgressions are going to be gone. Does anyone know what the word transgression actually means in the Bible? It's not just sin, but that's a good guess. Does anybody? So sin is when I, I do something that is not in the perfect will of God, but if God has made a law about that, like thou shalt not kill, okay, thou shall not commit murder, the first of the Ten Commandments, and I murder someone, I've committed a transgression because I've broken a written law. So transgressions are when I break a known law. Sin is simply not measuring up to the perfection of God. And so in this prophecy, he says, hey, look, there's not going to be any more law breaking once the 77s are over. There'll be no more transgressions. They'll be gone because there will also be no sin. Sin will be gone. Do you guys still struggle with sin out there tonight? I struggle with sin every single day. Probably before this talk is over, I'll sinned in some way in my mind or in my thoughts or in my behaviors. And so he's saying, hey, look, after 77s, no more sin. It's gone. Wickedness will be atoned for. Has that happened already? Has wickedness been atoned for? What do you guys think? Yes. Easy answers, I know. Um, Yeah, Jesus went to the cross, and he laid out his life, and the payment he made on the cross pays for sin, okay? All we need to do is put our faith in that payment that was made. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is that he's actually God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is, that the payment that was made on the cross, God was fully satisfied for, and so he, in response, raised Jesus from the dead, Then you will be saved, the Bible says. So wickedness has been atoned for. But then bring in everlasting righteousness. Wow, that's not happened yet. If you look around in the world today, you can see that there are a lot of bad things that still happen. Just just, uh, look at the news. To seal up vision and prophecy, meaning there are no more prophecies or visions that will need to be fulfilled in the Bible. They'll all be fulfilled. And to anoint the most holy. Jesus came to this earth the first time. Michael referenced it. And he suffered and died on a cross. But he's coming back again one day, I believe. And he's going to reign as supreme king over this earth. And the apostles were looking for that coming kingdom. In fact, at the end of the book of uh, Luke and the beginning of of, the book of Acts, after Jesus has raised from the dead, they asked him this question. They said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? right? They were looking for Jesus to rise up and be king in that moment. And of course, Jesus' answer was, it's not for you to know the times and dates. Jesus one day will establish a kingdom on this earth. He will be anointed as king. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess, according to the book of Philippians, that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? So um, all of these things are going to happen within the 77s. And yet none of them, most of them, except for one, has not happened yet. So this prophecy is future. That's the first thing I want you to see in it. It's future to us, and it's future to Daniel. And none of this has happened, except for the one in orange. And the second thing I want you to see is, this is for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews, yeah. And your holy city, Jerusalem. Not Tacoma or Gig Harbor, uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So when you look at Bible prophecy, one of the key principles that will help you is to distinguish which promises were made to what people, right? This prophecy right here in Daniel is given to the nation of Israel, to Daniel's people. It's given about Jerusalem, not to the church, every believer who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from the time that the temple curtain was torn at the end of the gospels when Jesus was raised from the dead, until today, okay, we would all be part of the church. We're not Jewish. We're not Israel. So this prophecy actually is not about us. Does that mean we'll, you know, does that mean it actually will not affect us in any way? No, we're going to get into that. Um, so 77s are decreed for your people, okay? So, these, so Daniel was looking for the restoration of the temple, Oh, I think this slide builds. Go ahead and uh, fast forward here. There you go. Okay. He, and the angel gives him this, this uh, 77s in three parts. Excuse me. One is, he says, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. There will be seven sevens, 49 years. And there will be sixty-two sevens, which adds up to 483 years. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Jesus was cut off and has nothing at the end of those 69 sevens. Okay. Then in the next sentence in verse 26, he says, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue uh until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, but in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. I don't have time to go into all the detail here, but the guy who's going to confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and then eventually desecrate the temple, is the Antichrist, I believe. So up and so this angel that gives Daniel this vision, he gives him the first half of it, which is 69 sevens, and says, Hey, during that time the temple's gonna be rebuilt, but the anointed one's gonna be cut off and have nothing. Jesus is gonna go to the cross and die. Okay? And then the angel says, Oh, and then after all that's happened, then there's gonna be another seven that's gonna start. And that seven begins not with Jesus' death, it begins with the confirming of a covenant with the Antichrist. That seven, I believe, is still future. And by the way, if you study through the book of Revelation, most of the book of Revelation is dealing with that seven-year period of time, which, again, I would believe is all future. Okay? So the prophetic clock was ticking away from the time that the, that the temple was uh, given the command to be rebuilt, and it stopped. The clock stopped when Jesus offered his life on the cross. In fact, Jesus was well aware of this in the New Testament when he enters into um, Jerusalem for the final Passion Week, right before he's about to go to the cross. He says, O Jerusalem, this is found in Matthew 23 and also in Luke 21. He says, O Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing Because Israel had rejected him. And he says, if you had only known that this day would bring you peace. This day would bring you peace. What day was Jesus talking about? He's referring to this 70-year prophecy in that passage. Okay, 77's prophecy. If you take 7 times 7 plus 62 times 7, that's 483 years. We already talked about that. You multiply it times 360 days, which is a prophetic calendar found in the Bible. And you'll have to take my word on this because I don't have time to show you this in Revelation. You'll get 100, 173,880 days. We happen to know when the issuing of the decree to restore that temple was given because it's in our Bible. You'll find it uh, in the book of Ezra. And... Um, I might have that wrong. It might be Nehemiah. Michael, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so you'll find this issue of the decree given in the Bible. And it was given in the month of Nisan in 444 B.C. And from the time that, uh the month of Nisan, that's the Jewish calendar month, by the way, from the time of the month of Nisan in 444 B.C. all the way till Jesus went into Jerusalem, riding down on a, into Jerusalem on a donkey, And where he says, if you had only known that this day would bring you peace, it's exactly 173,880 days. Okay. Jesus was well aware of this prophetic clock. And he references it several times. Now, the math on the right just shows you how it works out in a solar calendar. The Jews actually used a lunar calendar, and the math is different. But I figured since we have years that equal 365 days. Actually, 365.25 days is a, is a solar year for us. Um, I just showed you the math here, so you can see that it works out. There's 476 years. If you have 365 days times that many years, you get this many days. But you have 116 years in leap years. Oh, and by the way, there's no year between BC and AD in the solar calendar, so you have to subtract that. And then between March 5th and March 30th, which would have been Nissan 444 BC, you have 24 days you have to add in there. And it adds up to 173,880. Now I'm not the mathematician who did this, I'm the math, I'm the PowerPoint presenter who stole it. Um, the mathematician who did this is a guy named Sir Robert Anderson who wrote a book called The Coming Prince. He was an atheist, he didn't believe in Jesus. And he set out to prove the Bible wrong. He said, You know what? Since the Bible gives the exact date when this prophecy was supposed to be fulfilled, we can calculate by the lunar calendar and prove that the Bible's wrong. And when he went through all those calculations, he was very, very detailed and meticulous. He didn't just use math. He actually went to the observatory in, um, in Scotland, and he got the records of the lunar eclipses and the rotation of the moon around the earth, because this would have been uh, measured by a lunar calendar. And he did all the math, and at the end of it, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ when he saw that it worked out to the exact day that Jesus was rejected. So this is the situation of Israel, okay? 69 of the sevens have ticked off the clock. And then Jesus is cut off and the clock stops. And the clock remained stopped for a very long time, okay? Uh, And so... Today, we have people that look at this and they say, where is this coming of the Lord that he talked about? Uh, you can find that verse in Second Peter. And he says, he's always, you know, he's never coming back. It, things are going on like they've always gone on, I'm paraphrasing. And Peter answers, hey, the, day, the Lord, a day of the Lord is coming, right? And basically, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, He says, he's not willing that any of you should perish. That's why he's delaying and coming back. But all of this time, okay, can start to get elongated, and people can start to feel like, man, is God really going to keep his promises? Okay? And what what I'm going to show you here is the temple, the building structure that we talked about in the beginning, when the glory of God descended in that temple is a prophetic marker for the nation of Israel. This represents the very presence of God in their life, okay? So it was a big deal when the Babylonians came and they burned the first temple to the ground, the one Solomon had made that was overlaid with precious gold and everything, and they literally burned the walls and everything to get the gold, and there was nothing left. But Daniel realized that that desolation was only going to 70 years, because Jeremiah had prophesied it. So just like the Bible prophesied, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to the land of Israel and rebuild a second temple, the temple made by a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim. He was in the kingly line, the Judean kingly line. But he wasn't king. He was only governor when he came back, because there was a king in Persia that was, was reigning. And Israel was subjected to that king, okay? So why is this important? Well, when the temple gets rebuilt, all of a sudden Israel now once again has a place of worship that they can go into, a place where they can meet with God. But it didn't go well. Remember our prophecy in Daniel said that it was going to be rebuilt during times of trouble. There's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, I don't have time to go into all the details Prophesied in Daniel chapter 8. And he comes in and he sacrifices a pig on the altar and he has the high priest murdered. And so the apostles um, thought that was a destruction of a temple because the temple was desecrated, the high priest is murdered. That must be what it means when Daniel 9 said he was cut off. They thought maybe that was about the high priest. Okay. And it took them eight days to cleanse the temple, which is where we get Hanukkah, by the way. The temple was re-consecrated. But then Jesus came fulfilling the 69 sevens, but he was cut off. And not long after that, the Romans came and burned down the second temple and they destroyed it. And today there's no temple in Jerusalem. Today there's the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine, a mosque in the temple's place. This is where we're at um, from a mindset perspective. Now we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 24. And this is going to make a lot more sense to you now that I've hopefully set this context. So Matthew 24, Jesus has gone into the temple. He's tried to witness to the Pharisees. He's tried to show them that he is the true Messiah all through the book of Matthew. He's constantly trying to show that he is the rightful king that he is the Messiah over and over and over again. But the Pharisees won't have him. they reject him. And so he says in the chapter, Matthew chapter 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. There's that word again. Just like in the, this is kind of a crazy thought, but um, if you ever, if you noodle on this, just study the glory of God in the Old Testament, right? This is the cloud that leads them out of Egypt, is with them in the desert for 40 years. When they build the Solomon's temple, it descends on Solomon's temple. In Ezekiel's time, it leaves because of the sin. Um, now Jesus enters the temple on the Passion Week in order to teach and to try to convince the nation of Israel that he is their Messiah. Not since the days of Solomon has the glory of God entered the temple, but now Jesus enters this temple, the very glory of God in human form veiled and just like the glory of God left out through the east gate in the original temple in the time of Ezekiel, Jesus is rejected and he leaves through that very same gate, the east gate, and over to the Mount of Olives. And by the way, he's prophesied in the book of Ezekiel when he comes back to go back through that same gate. I wish I had a picture of that gate in my deck to show you guys. Muslims and um, Other unbelievers have basically walled the gate shut in order to prevent a Jewish Messiah from fulfilling that prophecy. And they've put a graveyard in front of it because no Jewish person would walk through a graveyard and be unclean by touching a dead body or having the risk of touching a dead body. You can Google it and you can find it. But the East Gate today, the enemies of God have closed it off because they want to prevent a Jewish Messiah from coming back in power and coming into that temple like the bible prophesies i have one of my sons said you know dad jesus will just like raise the dead of all those people and there won't be a graveyard there anymore so anyway um he's probably right so uh so he leaves the temple his apostles are thinking jesus is here the kingdom is going to appear at any second hey jesus check out how amazing these temple this temple is and Jesus says to them, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. There's not going to be a single stone here. This temple is going to get wrecked. It's going to be destroyed. And of course, the apostles who knew their Bible prophecy, who had read the book of Daniel, they don't ask him, why would you destroy that temple, Jesus? No, they ask, listen to what they ask. They said, um, tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The phrase the end of the age is used in the book of Daniel over and over again. What they're saying is, if this is the temple that's going to be destroyed, then that means the one Antiochus desecrated wasn't really the temple we thought it was. That means all those events prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and chapter 9, those events that we thought were in the past, those events we thought were history, those are still future. Talk about rewriting someone's eschatology with one little sentence. Jesus tells them, hey, this temple is going to be destroyed. And wait a minute, that doesn't fit in the prophetic picture we thought. Right? The reason these guys had a hard time, uh, I believe, in understanding those prophecies was for two reasons. One, it had been a very long time. And it's easy, like I said in the beginning of this, to become discouraged when things go on for a long time and they seem like they're not going to change. But the second reason is they spiritualized God's word. God didn't, the prophecy didn't say, you know, that the temple is just going to be unclean and then re-cleansed. It said the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay. And I want to tell you, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, this is the second principle that you can use to understand it. That is that all Bible prophecy should be interpreted literally. Now, when I say literally, I don't mean strictly literally. I don't mean when Jesus says, I am the door that you think, oh, he must be a four by eight piece of wood with a handle on it. No, I am the door is a figure of speech, meaning I'm the way you get into heaven. You have to come through me to get into heaven. No man comes to the Father but by me, he said. We recognize those of speech because we look at the original audience and who he was talking to. Just like I showed you at the beginning of this time, he was talking to Daniel when he said, your people and your holy city. He wasn't talking to Mike White. All scripture is for us, but not all scripture is to us. Just because you read a story about Noah's Ark doesn't mean God wants every Christian to go in their backyard and build an ark. No, we recognize that that is what he wanted Noah to do. And the reason it's written down and recorded in the scriptures is for our learning. Okay? So if you interpret scripture literally, you will, uh, you will actually be able to understand prophecy. It'll all fit together and it'll make sense. But as soon as you try to spiritualize it, you know, maybe there isn't really going to be a physical millennium, even though the Bible says there is. Maybe, maybe Jesus is going to be reigning in our hearts. Maybe Jesus isn't really going to come back. Maybe there's not really going to be a rapture. Maybe He's not going to come back. Um, Maybe it's just that His presence is here with us. I mean, there's some crazy, there's some crazy interpretations out there. But all those interpretations spiritualize or make the Word of God to no effect. Jesus accused the Pharisees of that. He says, "You make the Word of God by no effect by your traditions." And as Christians, we need to take God at His word. There are things in this Bible that I don't fully understand there are things in this Bible that I don't particularly like, especially the parts that condemn my sin sometimes, right? Um, But if I spiritualize it or I say, I'm not going to listen to this part of the Bible because I don't like it because it's not popular, it's not politically correct, it condemns my sin, it makes me look bad, it makes me feel bad, then essentially I'm just poking my head in the sand because it doesn't change God's Word. And God's Word is actually for our good. He, His plan for my life, for Mike White's life, is far better than any plan that I could make up or dream up. Far better. And even though I look in his word and I'm like, I don't know if I really like this, uh, God. Are you sure about that? Um, I know it's what's best because he's perfect and he has a plan to save this whole earth. And I know that he's invested in my life, right? God didn't say, well, you know, um, I might send Jesus to die for some of you, but uh, the rest of you are kind of, I don't know if I want to put that big of a payment. No, he sent his own son, not will, you know, just because he's not willing that anyone should perish. He's like, look, this is important. I'm going to go down to earth, and I'm going to die in their place to redeem them. If he's willing to do that, he's got definitely my good in mind. Well, the Jews, uh, well, the apostles, of course, realize that as soon as Jesus said that this temple was going to be destroyed, that that means all the events of Daniel 9 are now future. Future. Notice what he says to them. They say, wow, when is this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? Imagine asking someone who's already here. Hey, uh, you know, uh, so David Shikratov, I know you're going to uh, thrive tonight. Um, As I was just chatting with him in the hallway out here. So what's gonna, when are you going to come to Thrive? He's like, Mike, I'm here right now. What are you talking about? I'm at Thrive, right? Think of how weird this question is. They're asking Jesus face-to-face, what's going to be the sign of your coming? They're referring to his future coming. They instantly know that because this destruction of the temple hasn't happened yet, they instantly know that Jesus is going to come again, and current, his current position was not that second coming. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ. What I believe Matthew 24 is about, just to put it in context and to help you, I believe Matthew 24 is written to the Jews who will be alive during the tribulation period. And I believe it's written to that audience, okay? So there's two audiences here, and we'll get into the audience of the passage. The first audience is the apostles. They're like, hey, when are you coming back, Jesus? What's going to be the sign of the end of the age? You know, when are all these things going to happen? But there's a second audience of Matthew 24. If we keep reading um, and we get down to, um, let's see here. He says, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to it here. Yeah. In verse 15, he says, so when you see. Standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. The future reader of this text is the second audience of the text. Okay, He's saying to you apostles, you guys actually won't be alive and see... Test it. All right. Whew. That was loud. Um, okay. So where was I? Oh, the second the second audience is the reader who understands. So think about this for a second. Jesus is writing this passage, his apostles have asked him a question, and the question is how are we gonna know when we're actually in the end times? How are we gonna know that the 70th week is here? What's gonna be the sign of your coming? What's gonna be the sign of the end of the age? And he's basically telling telling them, you guys aren't going to see it. You guys are going to die, essentially. You're going to grow old and die, right? It's not going to happen in your lifetime. But let the person who sees the abomination of desolation and let him understand, okay? Verse 15, he says, uh, then let those, once this reader understands, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so what he's saying here is he's saying, I'll tell you what the signs of the end times are. I'll tell you when all this stuff is going to happen. I'll tell you when I'm going to come back. But just understand it's not really going to happen until the abomination of desolation. Okay? So in verse 4, he says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. So now put it in the context of the reader who understands. These Jews are going to be alive during the tribulation period. It's not going to be a good time for a nation of Israel. The Antichrist is going to be reigning. He's going to be friendly to them at first, but as soon as, he, as, soon as he, they basically reject his leadership, he's basically going to turn on them, and he's going to start to devour them. Okay? And so he says, don't be deceived. Many are going to claim, I am the Christ, uh, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed, for such things must happen. The Bible says the secret of God is with those that fear him. God is not trying to keep secrets away from believers. He's trying to inform them. And he doesn't want these Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish disciples that live during the tribulation period to be discouraged when they see all these signs. He wants to inform them. He's like, hey, when you see all this stuff, just know that now you're in the end times. I'm going to inform you. I'm going to give you a little secret here. And so he gives them these um, False Christ, and then wars and rumors of wars, and then famines, verse 7. And all of these are the beginning of birth pains. All these are the beginning of birth pains. If you turn to the book of Revelation, don't do it now. I don't have time to cover Revelation tonight. But if you were to turn to the book of Revelation and you look at the sealed judgments, you will find that the, that the things mentioned in this passage parallel the sealed judgments perfectly. Okay. So the end times begins with the tribulation, and the seal judgments are going to be unleashed. And I believe that these are talking about the seal judgments right here. In the middle of these seal judgments, you have this abomination of desolation. And then he says, um, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's going to be a bad time during the tribulation, no question. And then with the abomination of desolation, and then in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why not Tacoma? Why not Gig Harbor? Why Judea? Why Jerusalem? Because this is to the Jews. This is not to you and I. Let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back and get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. The church doesn't celebrate the Sabbath, but Jews will during the tribulation. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Definitely the tribulation. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear to perform great signs and miracles and even deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. This is what he's saying to this Jewish audience. See, I've told you ahead of time, so you don't have to be surprised, right? So if anyone says, there he is out in the desert, do not go. If they say, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So what's all this about? The tribulation period is going to go seven years, okay? And when the Antichrist turns on believing, the believing remnant of Jews that are alive during the tribulation, this passage is going to give them the instructions they need to survive the tribulation period, okay? So why would he say, if if someone says it's out in the desert, don't go. Or if someone says it's in the inner rooms, don't go. The reason it says that is to warn them, because what the Antichrist is going to do, the anti- guess what? The Antichrist is going to read his Bible too. He's going to know biblical prophecy, and he's going to say, hey, these Jews are looking for their Messiah to come back, and you know, they, they're waiting for him, and they know it's going to be seven years. So I'm going to trick them, and I'm going to tell them, hey, the Messiah's out here in the desert. Come on out. Or, hey, the Messiah's in here in Jerusalem, in the inner rooms. Come on in. And anyone who believes that will fall into the trap of the Antichrist, and they'll be killed. Okay? So he's warning these faithful Jews, don't do that. Okay, and then there's these signs in verse 29. This is, you can go back and find these same signs in the prophet Joel, speaking of the day of the Lord. And he says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all nations on the earth will mourn. So this is talking about the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. Okay, and he says... uh, We'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, just like that Shennina glory left out of the temple when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives east of the temple. He's going to come back in glory and power and come right in through the east gate, according to Ezekiel. And so all these nations are going to see this. It's going to be as visible as lightning is from the east to the west. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds of heaven to the other Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have been happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Which generation will not pass away until they've seen all these things happened? The reader who understands the second audience of the passage the apostles are not the reader who understands because they're not going to see the abomination of desolation. Okay? And so many people have read this chapter and they've gotten confused on this verse because they've said, well, the apostles, it says that the apostles, this generation, would not pass away until they see. What this is saying is the generation that sees these signs, the generation that sees the abomination of desolation, the generation that sees the the sun and the moon turn to blood, That will be the same generation that Jesus comes back. Why does God have to say this? Because the 77s had a big gap in the middle of them. Right? The 77s had a big gap in the middle of them. And from the time that Jesus was cut off until 2019, here we are in 2019, Jesus hasn't returned. And by the way, there's nothing, I believe, in the Bible that is preventing an Antichrist from signing a covenant with many for one seven. That will be the beginning of the prophetic clock picking back up. And so these Jews that are going to be alive during the tribulation, they're going to be like, yeah, we've heard a lot of this before. We've read the book of Daniel we've seen in the book of Matthew but is there going to be another gap or is this going to be it and Jesus reassures them listen this generation that sees these signs will be the same generation alive when i come back you're not going to pass away it's going to happen in this it's going to happen all in this lifetime i pointed out i forgot to talk about this but i pointed out that these are the beginning of birth pains the bible actually refers to the tribulation period like a woman in labor Um, and having watched my wife in labor, because I've never been in labor myself, um, I, uh, I understand what that's like. The contractions, when a woman is about to give birth to her child, the contractions start out kind of slow at first. And then when they get one minute apart, it's time to go to the hospital because things could happen very fast at that point. By the time they're ready to deliver a baby, the contractions are coming so fast, it's literally on top of one another and when you read the judgments of revelation michael did a great job of overviewing this at thrive kits up a few weeks ago when you read the judgments of revelation you find out that's the case they start off slow the seal judgments and then in the seventh seal there's seven trumpets and all of a sudden they pick up speed and then by the time you get to the seventh trumpet you have all seven bowls that look like they're almost released at the same time and it just the pace picks up and the judgments get harder and harsher and harsher and harsher And so he says, this is the beginning of birth pains, the beginning of the tribulation, but after the abomination of desolation, it's going to get really ugly. And you guys should be looking for these signs, just like the fig tree um, produces a certain aspect and you look at it and you say, wow, yeah, this this is when it might be coming. He's like, if you're alive during the tribulation, you should be counting the days and looking at the signs to know when I'm going to come back. And so he goes on in verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. He's, tell, he's saying, you Jews that are alive during the tribulation, you need to watch for my second coming. Think about what happened in Noah's day. God warned Noah there's going to be a coming judgment. He's warned Christians there is coming a judgment. He's warned these Jewish believers there is coming a judgment. And so, what uh, what happened in Noah's day? They, they blew it off. All the people in the world. They were like, ah, whatever, you know, rain, what is that? The Hebrew says that Noah, when warned about things unseen, probably no one had ever even seen rain. And Noah's telling him, hey, God told me it's going to rain. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know what it looks like because I've never seen it. But you guys got to come in this ark or you're all going to die because there's a coming judgment. Nobody listened to Noah except for his family, eight people. And they died. And this is what he says. It says, they were eating and drinking eating and drinking and marrying and giving him marriage. So they were just going about their merry way until the flood swept them all away. So let me ask you, who was swept away by the flood? There's the people outside the ark. So some people have erroneously looked at this and said, wow, is this talking about the rapture? No, this is talking about the judgment that's going to happen at the second coming when Jesus comes back. The people, swept away here are swept away in death. They're swept away in judgment. The people left in the field, left on the earth, they're the ones that are going to enter the millennial kingdom for a thousand years on this earth. So how do you know they're swept away in death, Mike? Well, a parallel passage to this one in Luke 21, the disciples actually ask Jesus when he says, Two will, be, you know, two will be in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. They say, Lord, where will these people be taken? And he says, where the vulture gathers, where there's a dead body, there the vulture will gather. That's a reference to Armageddon in the book of Revelation. He's saying, these people are going to be killed. That's what's going to happen. And so he's telling them, look for my coming. The people looking for Jesus' coming will not be swept away. Noah was looking for a judgment that came, and he was protected in the ark. Okay? So I'm not going to read the rest of this. Uh, You can get it on your own uh, due to time here. And I'm pretty sure I've, like, rambled on too much already. Um, But I do want to very quickly just say, what about the church? What about the church? Uh, Because we've done a lot of talking about what's going to happen to Israel We'll skip this. We'll skip that. Okay. Then a lot of talking about uh, Israel. What about the church? Well, if you were here, I forget how long ago, maybe a year ago, I preached on Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, and uh, that defines what the church is. So first off, let's define what the church is real quick. The church is every true believer that is part of the one body of Christ, and how do you become part of the one body of Christ? You become part of the one body of Christ by putting your faith in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit adding you to the single body. That's different than what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on people in power, and then it would leave them. So think about Samson, right? He would be obeying God, and he would, didn't have his hair cut, and the Spirit would come on him in power, and he'd rip gates apart and break out of jail and do, kill lots of people with a donkey jawbone. But then he cut his hair in disobedience to God, breaking the vow of a Nazarite, and his strength left him. The Holy Spirit left him. David would say, please take not your Holy Spirit from me in a psalm after he had committed adultery and murder. So in the New Testament, however, the Spirit indwells permanently. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, you have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body. On the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were waiting for the Spirit to be given, and they were praying, and then they spoke in tongues, the Bible says that that day Peter stood up and preached a sermon, and it says 3,000 were added to their number. What do you mean added to their number? Weren't there people that believed in Jesus in the Old Testament? Weren't there believers in the Old Testament? Yes. Abraham was saved by faith, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 11. So saints have always been saved the same way, by faith through grace in all time. But the spirit uniquely indwells believers in the New Testament from the time of the day of Pentecost until our present day, and it has added them all into one single body, OK? And so that's the church, and Ephesians deals with that mystery of the church. But this is what it says in First Thessalonians chapter four about the church. So all the prophecy we've been talking about tonight, all the stuff in Daniel, all the stuff in Matthew 24, all the stuff that we reference in Revelation, that's actually about the nation of Israel. It has nothing to do with us as a church. But what does have something to do with us? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep and grieve like those who have no hope. Unbelievers really have no hope in this world. When they die, that's the end, right? But he's saying, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you, um, sorry, he says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell tell you, um, I lost my place, Um, oh, there we go. Uh, We who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not proceed who have died, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will, uh, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers about the times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, peace and safety. While they're going around giving in marriage and being married, and while they're eating and drinking and happiness, just like the people in the ark, while people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. There we have it again. And they will not escape. So 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18, he's describing... The rapture, I believe. If you look up every reference in the Bible to the second coming uh, and the rapture, you will find two distinct comings that are irreconcilable. There will be a list on one side that says when Jesus comes a second time, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. He's going to come in judgment. He's going to um, do all these different things, okay? But at the rapture, we're not gonna, he's not going to touch, his feet are not going to touch the Mount of Olives. We're going to meet him in the air. And the rapture is something that's never talked about in the Old Testament, except in shadow and type. Okay? So, when he gets to chapter 5, he says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. In other words, you guys already know all about the day of the Lord because you've read the book of Daniel. You already know all about the day of the Lord because you've read the book of Matthew. You already know about all the day of the Lord because you guys are well versed on the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Right? Right? So he just gets to describing to them the rapture. And then he goes on and says, now we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, a brand new subject. But notice what he says. He says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ one day at the trumpet call of God is going to lift this church off the earth and we're going to meet him in the air. We're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, just like first Corinthians 15 says. Okay. And then we're going to be in heaven with him for seven years while judgment rains down on this earth. During the tribulation period. And at the end of that tribulation period, he's going to bring us back with him to this earth. Notice this passage says, We believe that he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So if you're a believer today and you die, you're absent from the body and present with the Lord, and Jesus is going to bring you back with him to this earth at the end of the tribulation period. And if you're alive at the rapture, you're not going to taste death. You're going to be instantly transformed into a new spiritual body and meet Jesus in the air, right? And it says, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's many other places I could go in the Bible to show you a rapture of the church. This is all I have time to spend on it tonight. Um, But, uh, you know, I just want to leave you guys with a few questions here. The reason there's so much confusion around prophecy today is because people don't take God at his word. They don't read it literally, okay? And uh, and as such, they're not very excited about the Lord's coming. And so I just want to ask you, are you excited about the Lord's coming? He could come back at any second. Before I finish this talk, we could all be raptured out of here, and that would just be fine by me. Then I wouldn't have to fly to Dallas tomorrow. Um, but, uh, you know, and that's the first question. The second one is, are you... T- Taking Jesus at face value. We live in a, a society, see, Satan is a master of um, turning society upside down so that we call good evil and evil good, and we lose our moral compass, and there's many things in this world today where, where maybe we're emotionally attached to it, and we say, man, the, the, Bible is kind of, the Bible is kind of a jerk for saying that. I can't believe God would say that. What? God wants women who are caught in adultery to be stoned? What kind of a God does that? Right? Uh, in the Old Testament, and there's certain things like that that we get hung up on. And the reality is, those things are there for a reason. And I can actually work through a lot of them biblically, but if you can't, do you trust God that He's perfect, that He's righteous, that is what He said in His Word is the best, even though it may seem right now like it's not the best, right? And then, do you trust God and know that He is good? The Bible says, "Those who come to the Lord must." Believe that he exists and uh, believe that he exists and believe that he's good, essentially, paraphrasing that, and that he rewards those who seek him. God's not a God out there waiting to smack down and hurt people, right? No, he willingly gave his life on the cross. He wants more good for your life than you actually want for your own life. And if his will is better than mine, and even though it's been a long time before Jesus has come back, this is the kind of teaching that the church needs today. They need to know that Jesus could come back any second. And we shouldn't be like those false professors in Second Peter that says, where is this Lord's coming that it's always talked about, right? And or like these people that are during the tribulation period are not going to be looking for his coming. They're going to be surprised by it, Okay. So I guess, do you trust God with your life, right? Uh, I'm 43 years old, and um, I, have all, I always have all kinds of plans for my life, actually. I'm one of those ADD people that thinks up all kinds of things. Um, most of them never come true, so don't worry. Um, but uh, but uh, there's been many, many times where I thought I knew what was best for my life. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, yes, I'm going to go do this, God. Yes, I'm going to do that, God. Or do I just rest and say, Lord, what do you want to make of me? Maybe it's something I haven't even thought of, right? But I know whatever it is, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And when I get to the end of this life, I'm going to look back on the times that I let God have control. And I said, God, take me and make me whatever you want me to be. And those are going to be the good times. And I'm going to think about all the times where I took control. I'm going to be like, man, I was kind of an idiot. Why did I do that? I'm going to regret those times right? You won't regret letting the Lord direct and guide your life. Uh, there's, so, there's so many things that have happened in my life that I would never would have dreamed or planned of that God has brought in that are amazing beyond anything I could think or hope, right? So, this the same is true about the second coming. The Lord will return, and it could happen at any moment. And I pray that you know the Lord Jesus, because if you do, you're going to meet him in the air with me, And if you hold a little different view on eschatology than I do, um, we can discuss it on the way up. So, yeah. All right. Let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you, God, that um, you are coming back and that it could happen at any moment. Lord, we want to encourage one another with these words, just like your scripture says, uh, we want to rightly divide your Bible, God, so that we recognize the promises that are made to the right people. And we want to just take you at face value, God, believing what you have said and putting it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, help us to do this. And amen.